Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. And I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. It's just me today, and I thought I would continue the daily podcasts, pushing our pledge drive forward. Please, if you haven't become a patron of the pod- podcast, please do so by going to patreon.com. You might have to actually go to your computer, go to patreon.com, and go to Psychology in Seattle and pledge. If I'm panting, it's because I just worked out and I have not yet cooled down yet, so <laughs> I, might, I might be kind of panting. Uh, okay, uh, today's episode, I thought I would talk about an article that someone sent me recently. It was written in 15, 2015. And it's titled, Six Eating Disorder Myths Debunked, and it's written by Nina Bahadur. And let's get into it. Okay, myth number one. Eating disorders happen only to white women. They're saying that it's a myth that eating disorders happen only to white women. Yes, this is a massive myth. When you think of a person with anorexia, my guess is, is that you picture a white woman. And this is uh, a problem to some extent because there are lots of people who suffer from eating disorders that are not women and are not white. And it's even possible, so for instance, just on the gender issue for cis cis females, cis males, it's estimated that about um, a third of people who suffer from eating disorders are, are men which, you know, is 30 40% of people with eating disorders. However, it's possible that it's much more than that because of underreporting and, and misdiagnosing. Since people have a stereotype about eating disorders, they might actually, when they come across someone with an eating disorder and they, are, they happen to be men, they might not actually detect it and record it. And if you're a, if you're a man and you have an eating disorder, you might not recognize it in yourself because you think, well, I can't have an eating disorder because I'm a man. So it's even possible that uh, it's much greater than that. So in general, uh, I just like to assume that if someone says this person has an eating disorder, I give it about an equal chance that it could be a male or a female. And when it comes to ethnicity, same sort of thing. There seem to be some differences among ethnicities. It's hard to measure this sort of thing because it depends on how you define eating disorder and where you look and, you know, is this, you know, how you ask the questions. But there seem to be some differences among ethnicities. But in general, there are, there are very small differences. A lot of research says that, that there's really no difference between ethnicities and race when it comes to eating disorders. So, again... Just when you think of eating disorders, uh, think of it as a problem for men and women and for people of all all ethnicities and around the globe. It just so happens that for whatever reason in American culture, we, for whatever reason, only emphasize white and often blonde, (laughs) blonde white girls as the poster children of eating disorders, but that's it, a problem. And I, I, you know, I don't know how to break this myth. It, it's, it's, I think we have to have a campaign or maybe there is a campaign to raise awareness because when you have a myth like this, like I said, 
not only will you have clinicians misdiagnosing people because of stereotype, but also you'll have individuals with problems not detecting it in themselves because they think, I, how can I have an eating disorder? I'm not a blonde girl. So <clears throat> there we go. All right, myth number two. Eating disorders only happen to young people. Eating disorders only happen to young people. Again, another stereotype when you think of – when I think of a, the, the poster child of eating disorders, I think of a, a young woman or a teenager, some, you know, between 15 and 25. This is a myth. There, there does seem to be uh, somewhat of a higher prevalent, prevalence among younger people, but you can have uh, eating disorders – in your into you you know as an elderly person you can be 70 years old and having have an eating disorder absolutely absolutely so yeah that's another stereotype that we want to that we want to break for instance imagine a 60 year old black man being anorexic that's totally possible and the only reason why we can't picture that in our mind is because it's just not depicted in our culture but absolutely uh 60-year-old black man can suffer from an eating disorder. Absolutely, it happens. It's just not reported and not talked about. Okay, another myth. All those with eating disorders are skeletally thin. Yeah, I would say that this is a myth that's out there. People think that uh, if, if someone isn't very thin, then they don't really have an eating disorder. And this is a a misunderstanding of what an eating disorder is. Certainly, eating disorders can lead to being very, very thin, but for many people, it doesn't lead to that. For for many people with eating disorders, it doesn't involve uh, that uh, element, that they become very thin. Uh, for instance, I, I worked with people that suffered from bulimia and they were rarely thin. They were average build or even uh, above average build. And so uh, you, you can have an eating disorder and not be super thin. So that's, that's just something to think about. Number four myth, anorexia and bulimia are the most common eating disorders. So there's this eating disorder. In, in, the, in the DSM-5, we have this thing called not otherwise specified so NOS, not otherwise specified. So you can have a, or I should say in DSM-4, we used to say not otherwise specified. The new language in DSM-5 is other specified. It's like, why? I don't know why they changed the language, just to make it more confusing. It's funny because when I was first learning about psychopathology and DSM in 1995, the DSM-3-4, the DSM-4 had just come out, I think, in 94. And so everyone was still using using a language from DSM-3. And one of the old language elements was the term rule out, meaning that if you were seeing someone for the first time and you thought, well, it seems like they might have depression, but I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to rule out depression, meaning that you you write that in in the diagnosis, and you're basically saying, I'm not quite sure about this, and so I need to do more assessment to to know. But for now, it kind of looks like they might have depression. 
Well, the four language said rule out was no longer the term. Why? Who knows? The new term was provisional. Provisional makes probably more logical sense because it because rule out it's like what in the world does that mean? That's sort of that's jargony. But provisional it makes more sense to the general public because it's provisional. That's the definition. Is it's it's um, you're not quite sure, and it's temporary to some extent. Well, in four, they use the language for a different concept. You would have all the different mood disorders, and then you would have, I believe, mood disorder not otherwise specified, or mood disorder NOS, or anxiety disorder NOS, not otherwise specified, meaning that there's a disorder there, but they don't fit into any of the other diagnostic categories, but there's definitely a problem, and so we're going to throw all these people into this NOS category. Well, apparently, according to research, the eating disorder NOS is the most prevalent eating disorder, and uh, it's even more common than anorexia and bulimia. And uh, But with the new DSM-5, maybe they need to do more research to double-check that. I'm guessing it would still be similar to that. There's a lot of different eating disorders. In the DSM-5, they call them feeding and eating disorders. They don't just label them as eating disorders anymore. You have pica. You have rumination disorder. You have avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. You have anorexia nervosa. You have bulimia nervosa. You have binge eating disorder. And then you have other specified feeding or eating disorder. And then you have unspecified feeding or eating disorder. (laughs) So there are many other eating disorders besides anorexia and bulimia. And according to research, apparently the most common is the uh, other specified or not otherwise specified. And this is a problem. In addition to the myth about it just being young, blonde females that suffer from it, it's also a problem in that most people are aware of anorexia or restricting one's diet to lose weight, and and, and most people are aware of people who purge or vomit, forcibly vomit to try to uh, manage food issues. And uh, But there's a lot of other manifestations of eating issues, uh, and and it's just too bad that um, there's not awareness around it because not only do clinicians not detect it, uh, but also it's harder for people to get help when they don't know that they have a thing. <laughs> a lot of people benefit when they realize, oh, this is a thing. This is something that other people suffer from, and therefore there must be either others that I can go to for help and others I can talk to about this that will understand my issues. It's, it's really amazing when you're suffering and you find out that you, you have a, a group of people out there that know exactly how you feel. It's, it's a very empowering and liberating and invigorating experience. And when we raise awareness for things, we, we, uh, we help with that. Okay. Myth number five, eating, eating disorders are, are a lifestyle choice. 
yes, this myth is definitely out there. I will talk with people about eating disorders or I'll hear people talking about it. And they seem to believe that eating disorders are, you know, it's just, just someone who has some body problems and they're uh, dieting too much or they're overly concerned with being thin or or they they eat too many salads or I don't know. There There's some kind it, – it, to them – Anorexia is a normal thing, a variation on normal behavior. And that's because the vast majority of people, in my experience, have never really they, – they really don't know what anorexia or bulimia or the other eating disorders are really like. They've either never met someone with that or they've never had it depicted for them. And so they don't realize how disordered the disorder can be. It's extreme. It's, it's no joke. It's not just wanting to lose weight. It's not just dieting a lot. It is an extremely debilitating, even to some extent delusional disorder. Just, just as an example, when, when you talk to somebody, and maybe, perhaps you've heard of these kinds of things, when you, when you talk to someone with typical anorexia, they will be, you know, wasting away. They'll be five foot four and weighing ninety pounds. And if you're not familiar, five foot four, I don't know, should probably weigh one twenty at the lowest. I'm guessing, just a rough estimate there. So if they're if they're weighing ninety ninety pounds, uh, then you know that's like twenty five or thirty forty percent underweight or something. And they, you can, again, you can, you can see the, the skeleton behind their skin. They are confused. They believe that they're fat. They believe they're disgustingly fat. And everyone who's trying to help them, they're suspicious of. People are saying, look, if, if you don't eat, it's, it's, you're going to die. And the client will will nod their head and say, "Uh huh, okay." And then, but in their mind, they're thinking, "Nope, I'm not going to eat. There's no way. There's no way you're going to get me to eat." And for a lot of people, they die because they are so disordered, because they restrict to the point and where their body begins to have complications that lead to death. And so, it's not just a lot of dieting. It's not just being overly concerned with your body. It's 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 a it's an extreme disorder. Bulimia, same thing. It's it's not just something that people do. You you can you can vomit as a way of trying to monitor your calories and not qualify for bulimia. Just because you're vomiting doesn't mean that you qualify for the diagnosis. The diagnosis of bulimia is is severe, and it's it's a it's a long term issue, and it's it's quite uh, debilitating to people, and it ends up taking over their lives. It's not like they just live a regular life, and then every once in a while, when they eat too much pizza, they throw up. It's it's not like that. People with bulimia that I've worked with, it's a it's an it it engulfs their entire life. It ruins their social life. It ruins their romantic life. It ruins their work life sometimes. It ruins their their body. They become isolated and ashamed 
and obsessed and it it takes over their life it's it's no joke it is it is not a light issue so yes definitely this myth is a problem eating disorders are a lifestyle choice that is a massive myth all right the final myth here eating disorders are caused by dysfunctional families yes this is another myth that is out there it's something that i actually hear from a lot of clinicians whenever they come across someone with uh, an eating disorder, they assume that there's something very wrong with the family. They assume that the, the mother often is blamed. They will often look for someone in the family to blame for the eating disorder. And I'll tell you this, absolutely, if you have problems in a family uh, of any sort, trauma, conflict, other people with eating disorders, a family that, that approaches food in very strange ways and approaches body image in very strange ways. This will increase the risk of having a feeding or eating disorder. But you can have an eating disorder emerge out of a quote-unquote healthy family. That can absolutely happen. Plus, disorders like this are rarely as simple as saying, oh, it's because of the mother. It's usually much more complex than that, in my opinion. It's, it's actually, to some extent, impossible to, to nail down why people develop these, these issues because you, you would have to have some way of observing and measuring and coding someone's experience growing up in a very minute way. And there's just we just don't have the technology or the interest in doing such a thing. Plus, our genetic research is in its infancy and so we have a hard time determining that. Plus, genetic research right now is primarily focused on coding our DNA and looking for correlations. And this is a small portion of what the future of genetic research will uh, show us. Epigenetics are uh, perhaps uh, more important than genetics. But anyway, the point is, is it's very hard to determine the cause of a eating disorder in somebody. And to point to the mother as the cause is uh, short-sighted and misguided, wrong-headed, and abusive to the mother. In my experience, people with eating disorders often come from families that have issues regarding food and body image. But let me ask you this. What family doesn't have problems with food and body image? <laughs> I mean, what, what family do you know doesn't have someone in the family, if not everyone, that is suffering from some kind of oddity or some kind of stress or anxiety or some kind of family issue around food and body image? I would say every family in American culture has some problem. So if, if you're looking for some correlation there, it's not hard to find in any individual's life. Uh, plus, again, you're, you have to think about genetic issues. You have to think about trauma issues. You have to think about culture. You absolutely have to talk about culture. Everyone that knows me knows that I am uh, often railing about our uh, uh, ignoring of the cultural factors that are involved and uh, our culture absolutely causes all sorts of problems. It's, it's very complex. But just to, just to think off the top of my head regarding how culture can play a role in eating disorders is we have a culture that is centered around crappy food for you. 
we have uh, you know commercials and we have a, a a system in which fast food is is something that you should do. Uh, you need to work hard. Uh, I mean, how many people, for instance, are given two hours uh, during the middle of the day to go to their local grocery store that has uh, you know local greens and vegetables and make a a wonderful salad for themselves and and you know kick back and really think about what they want to eat and and eat it at their leisure and then go back to work. How, how many people have have that luxury? I would say less than 1%. The vast majority of Americans uh, the way our culture is, the way our culture tells us that what we're supposed to do and the way our system is regarding labor and, and work, the workforce is you might have a half an hour to eat lunch, which means that in between all the things that you're stressed out about, and by the way, when you're stressed out at work, you tend to eat more and you tend to look for more high-calorie, high-salt, high-fat foods. And so you, what do you do? You go to the cafeteria that serves pizza and serves bagels and cream cheese and things that you know aren't good for you or muffins, uh, donuts, and this sort of thing. And you're hopped up on coffee and Diet Coke and, and you're not exercising and you're just sitting at your desk all day. And that's, that's our culture. So you have that factor. And then you have this other factor in our society that gives people the impression that there's something wrong with them if their body doesn't look a certain way. And so if, unless you are one of those rare individuals who has a body that looks a particular way, you know, like the way the models look, then you're already in a place of shame, in a place of avoidance. And when you're, when you're ashamed of your body, then you tend to get a little weird about it. You tend to act funny with regards to how you manage it. And you might start obsessing and you might not uh, approach food in a very relaxed way. You might not even ask other people what they do because you're ashamed of, of asking. And so you might start a, uh, developing an elaborate system around which to avoid food and then you can't avoid it anymore and then you binge because you can't take it anymore and this leads down the road of more shame and more isolation and more strangeness. And so our culture, just those two elements of uh, a fast food culture, which I don't really like that term, but I think you know what I mean, and a culture of shaming people that don't fit into a very narrow band of acceptable body shapes and sizes. And and I, I even know people that have what society would call as perfect bodies. I know people who have perfect bodies, and they're ashamed of their bodies. It's just it's bizarre. It's just bizarre. Most people aren't ashamed of many other things in their life, like, oh, yeah, I have a car, and it has four wheels, and it gets me here and there, and it's fine. Uh, you know, could we shame someone's car? Certainly, we go. Oh, it's it's not a it's not a Mercedes. It's not an Audi. It's a crappy Honda. You know, but people would say, "Well, fuck you. I don't care. This is my car. I like it." But when it comes to bodies, I mean, how many people are proud of their bodies? Really, really proud, or or at least just indifferent about their bodies. How many people are merely indifferent about their bodies? I, in America, I would say very few people, and that's because of our culture. There's something; it's not inherent in our biology that we should be ashamed of our bodies. I mean, 
go to distant cultures from America and you will find that Americans are particularly weird about food and bodies and, and the internet isn't helping. Um, so anyway, that's my rant about that. All right. So those are the six, six eating disorder myths debunked is the name of the article written by Nina Bada Bahadur printed on HuffPo for women Again, those myths are eating disorders happen only to white women. Eating disorders happen only to young people. All those with eating disorders are skeletally thin. Anorexia and bulimia are most co- are the most common eating disorders. That's a myth. Eating disorders are a lifestyle choice, and eating disorders are caused by dysfunctional families. I'm just realizing this is this is published on HuffPo for women. Apparently, there's a, like a women HuffPo area. And if we're going to debunk these myths, it shouldn't just be on the women page, right? It should be everywhere or even just on the men page. I don't know. Anyway, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Please become a patron of the podcast. We make these podcasts for everyone, but we hope that for those of you out there that can afford it, we ask that you become a patron of the podcast because... We want to uh, get reimbursed for the costs and the time, particularly the time. And we're trying to get up to uh, three or 400 patrons so that we can start paying the co-hosts because we can all agree that they deserve that, don't they? And if we get enough patrons, like, I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000 of you, then maybe this could become uh, huge, you know? I, if If we all can make a living off of this, then we could dedicate all of our time <laughs> to this endeavor, which I don't know. I think that'd be really fun. All right. Well, take care of yourself out there, please, because you deserve it. You really do. Mm-hmm.